the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, vampires laying down sick beats, werewolves munching on souls, and cherry cordials that have spoiled lying unrevealed in a candy box until the fateful moment when you bite down and the scream of anguish courses through your body. Plus part 37 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Reich E. Spohr joins us this time for a discussion of his contemporary fantasy novel, Paradigms Lost. Reich's hero, Jason Wood, in this one is an information specialist investigator who is able to take on vampires and werewolves using technology and his own pattern recognizing ability. Interestingly, the book is set in 1999. Jason is a data miner when data mining wasn't cool. So travel back with us to the days of LAN connections and Blue Cat 5 Wire as we discuss Reich's book. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. It's read by Bronson Pinchot. And now here's the news. The December mass market paperbacks are at booksellers now. These include Trade Secret by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. This is the latest entry in the Leaden Universe series. The readership for the Leaden books has been steadily increasing as more and more people find out about them. And I happened to hear the other day that David Weber is reading through the series and he loves them. Also in mass market format is The Man Who Sold the Moon and Orphans of the Sky by Robert A. Heinlein with an afterword by Mark L. Van Name, author of the John and Lobo series. Finally, book two in John Ringo's epic zombie science fiction series Black Tide Rising is out at booksellers. This one is called To Sail a Darkling Sea, and it is the sequel to Under a Graveyard Sky. One other thing I thought I'd mention, we have been offering David Weber signed limited editions bound in leather, as we reissue the early books in the Honor Harrington series. Coming up in the summer of 2015 is Field of Dishonor, which is book four in the series. Now these truly are limited to a thousand copies and they all sell out. It would be a good idea to pre-order if you want one, like now. You can pre-order at an online retailer or at your local bookstore. These orders are the ones that get filled first. Plus there are a few unsold copies of A Short Victorious War leather-bound signed edition, which are still out there and are grabbable. And, of course, all the December mass markets make great gifts as well. Trade Secret, To Sail a Darkling Sea, and The Man Who Sold the Moon are now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Reich E. Spohr to the podcast. Hi, Reich. Reich Spoor is the author of Bain books, uh, including Digital Night, the Arenaverse novels, Grand Central Arena, and Spheres of Influence. And uh, you're working, you have a new one under contract. What was the name of that one going to be? The, the tentative com, um, title for that one is um, uh, Challenges of the Deeps. 
They're not absolutely sure that that's what's going to stay, but that's what I'm working with right now. He's also the author of Epic Fantasy Adventure Phoenix Rising and the upcoming Phoenix in Shadow. With Eric Flint, he's the co-author of the hard science fiction Boundary series, including Boundary, Threshold, and Portal. Upcoming in February is Castaway Planet, which is set in the Boundary universe, but starts another story cycle there. Reich is also the author of contemporary fantasy Paradigms Lost, which is out now at booksellers everywhere. So, Reich, let's get down to the really important stuff. Uh, is your In your acknowledgments, you thank the Butcher of Bane for help. I want to know if you mean me or the copy editor. <laughs> <laughs> Neither one, actually. I mean Eric Flint. Oh, the Butcher of Bane, Eric Flint. By insulting his editing and calling him a butcher, cleverly convinced him to publish to to get Jim to publish me. So, yeah. What was the who was the author you were disagreeing over? He was editing some of them. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. It's Schmidt. Schmitz. James Schmidt. Yeah. And it was specifically the Telsey Amberdon stories, his first part of the Schmitz release. Uh, someone released a version of a message that Eric had written about the editing. And whoever released it had cleverly edited to make it look like Eric was basically saying, yeah, I know better how to write than, uh, than this Schmitz guy, and I'm going to fix everything that's wrong with it. Hmm. So naturally, that started way more. <laughs> so the Butcher of Bane gets thanks because without that flame war and subsequent com communications that we had, had never been published. Well, or at least I wouldn't have been published that way at that time. Eric thought that even though he disagreed, even though you both disagreed on a particular point, that you were being quite reasonable. <laughs> and, he, uh, and he liked the way that you uh, wrote. Uh, well, actually what happened was that after we had established our relationship as being honorable adversaries and, you know, friendly communicating, um, it happened that we found out that uh, I lived roughly where his mother-in-law lived. So when he came up, he came for a visit. And while I was while he was here visiting, Kathleen, not me, brought up that I the fact that I was writing because I would never dare do that. I would have considered it you know, terribly intrusive. Um, but since she brought it up, he felt obligated, as he says, to ask. And at that point, I mentioned the only thing I had available was. Uh, the stuff that became Digital Night at that kind of time called Morgantown, the Jason Wood Files, or Jason Wood Chronicles. Either way, something that uh, that title was never going to survive. But he said he'd take a look at it, and then he turned out that he really liked it. Matter of fact, he intended to read only one section of it and give his judgment, but he found that he read the entire thing, which to him was pretty much the sign right there that this was very publishable. It's always good when you can't put it down. <laughs> so uh, you write in the introduction that Paradigm's Lost is a revision and extension of that first novel, Digital Night. Can you explain how you revised Digital Night and why you revised it, maybe? Decided it was a good thing to do. Well, there's several reasons. I suppose the primary one was that when the rights reverted to me, you know, after it had been out of print for a while, and Bain handed him back to me. Um, I realized I'd gotten to be a lot better writer than I had been because Digital Night, a large chunk of that wasn't even written when it was published. It was written a decade and more before then. Matter of fact, the original ideas that made the first major stories in Digital Night I first had in the late 70s. And I started writing the story. I wrote the first stories in the 80s. Um, so my skills at writing had improved. Uh, second, um, once I got to the point where it was clear that I was going to have 
Phoenix Rising published and a certain character, namely Xavier Ross, show up in it, um, it became clear to me that there were interactions that I hadn't detailed that really should be in there um, between Jason and um, and uh, Xavier. Xavier. There are connections. I wanted to bring out the connections because really Z um, Jason is the nexus of everything, even though he doesn't know it. Every single important event that happens in that universe somehow connects to him, even though he doesn't know it, even though he may never know it. He may never know that because he did this and that and the other thing, these things happened maybe 150 years later, but he's, he's the one, the nexus of all weird events that happen. Um, Can you explain the the Zarathan universe that you've, I mean, this is a, a huge sort of world-building thing that you've been at for years and years, and you you connect a lot of your books together through it. That's right. I've got, uh, I've been working on it for, must be 37 years by now. Uh, Zarathan is the, the, the center of it in the sense that I spent more time working on Zarathan, which is the epic fantasy type world where Phoenix Rising and its sequels take place. Um, but once I did that and I wanted a connection to Earth, I had to figure out how those connected. And it all goes back um, five, 500,000 years to the civilization of Atlantea, the greatest civilization of humanity, and its connection with the greatest civilization currently on Zarathan, which was the uh, Empire of the Sarans, the uh, Children of the Dragons. And there was a force which decided it was time that these things got brought down for various reasons. And when they came down, it devastated not only Zarathan, but the rest of the galaxy, um, which was part of the Atlantean Empire. Um, I couldn't even begin to explain the whole thing, but the idea is that <laughs> magic was sealed away from its connection with Earth because Zarathan was sealed away from it. It's almost, but not quite, impossible to get um, from one to the other right now uh, in the time frame of uh, when Digital Night starts and when um, Phoenix Rising starts. Mm. And part of one of the stories that I hope to tell, which is the Spirit Warriors uh, trilogy, uh, which involves Xavier Ross and his friends that show up in Phoenix Rising and in Paradigm's Lost, um, will be the breaking of the seal that keeps magic away from the world. When that happens, both worlds change. And the change uh, can be earth-shaking. Um, I've actually written one story, one novel uh, that takes place after that. Some of the details of it may change, but I'm, but uh, it's actually more a superhero novel than anything else. Because, uh, well, again, into <laughs> this, I could talk about this literally for hours, explaining how everything works. Yeah. Well, this is. I mean, a lot of your creativity sort of arises from you just working this stuff out in your mind. Yeah, I try to build a universe that makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, everything connects to everything, and there's certain beings, powers, and elements uh, that turn out to be the major drivers of the um, events that we get to see in books. Um, one important aspect that I try to bring out in Phoenix Rising especially was that you can have the greatest heroes in, in, uh, that you can imagine but one group of heroes can't fix everything, and there will be many groups of heroes that have to fix things so that you see different groups of heroes cross paths in Phoenix Rising, even though we're focused on the one group with Kyrie and 
um, Tobomar and Poplock. Um, you see the five um, children from Earth meet up with them, and you actually cross paths with a couple of other important people that uh, don't don't even really pay a, play a part there, but show up later on, but show up in other stories, so to speak. Paradise Lost is set in 1999 uh, in in an Earth-like place. Uh, there's some Really fun historic details. They're historic now, such as land connections and Cat 5 wire and stuff getting put into houses. Uh, why did you decide to keep it in 1999, and what limitations or maybe opportunities did that offer while you were uh, revising Digital Night into Paradigms Lost? Well, put bluntly, that was about as far forward as I could set it before I broke some of the basic uh, tricks. Uh, that are used in uh, uh, Paradigms Lost to for Jason to solve his problems. Basically, uh, all the main adventures of Jason were originally envisioned literally as a as a sort of a trick thing. It's a mystery. I try and make fair mysteries of them. But since he's a man with no special powers and or anything other than quick wits, what I was what I was after was. Ordinary man defeating supernatural threat, playing by its rules, but figuring out a way to do it in a way that isn't going to hopefully be obvious to the reader. So, in that sense, the entire outline was written down, could be written down the back of my hand in not very small type. Um, the problem is that some of those tricks depended on certain technological setups that don't exist. Uh, for example, when I first wrote the story, tanning salons and tanning rooms were big rooms. You, know, you, didn't, uh, you didn't sit down in this bed and close a little thing over you. The whole room was covered with lights. Um, I don't really think too many of them even existed in, by 1999, but I know darn well virtually all of those are gone by now. Mm -hmm. um, but I needed one of these places that was a big enough room in order to do the trick that I do. So, well, tell us about Jason Wood. He's not exactly a PI. Um although he does take on clients, and these are mysteries. He is not me. What he does is he takes off, uh, and he was originally conceived when I was trying to figure out what sort of career I wanted. And one of them was being an information specialist, and that's what he is. You want to find out something and you don't know how, he researches it. Um, as time goes on, especially in our era, that becomes less of an important thing, except in the sense of how you can get more information out of what you have. So he's become a more data miner than anything else. He can put together what appear to be unrelated pieces of information and say, wait a minute, there's a connection here. You don't see the connection, but I do. And it goes from here to here to here to here. And because of that, you get this. Now, right now, we've got, you know, automated systems that do this all the time, you know, on your personal information, though, so they notice that you buy all the stuff at your local grocery store and your patterns of buying it is this and this and this, and therefore they deduce, deduce that you've got... Uh, Two women in your house between the age of, you know, 18 and 30 who like X, Y, and Z, and then they can start pushing coupons at you. Jason does this in a more tailored fashion for people who need to find out things. And it could be something ranging from the mundane, like, look, I've got a patent that I want to make, and here's the idea. Um, I think it's unique, but I can't possibly figure out if all the other patents out there apply to it. Can you do that for me? And he can do that, even though they're professional patent searchers, he's still pretty good at it. Uh, we see in the beginning of Digital Night that he can also enhance uh, photographs, bring out details that are not um, obvious to the 
uh, naked eye, and so on. And um, of course, in the course of his uh, investigations, he's asked to perform analysis on rather peculiar sets of data to get information that at first seems insane. Yep, like pictures that don't have anyone in them, but obviously there is someone there. <laughs> yes, exactly. Could be somebody there, and there isn't. So how exactly is that possible? How can I prove that the guy really was there, even though he was not visible? Yes, that's exactly the sort of thing he has to do, and then it gets more complex from there. Yeah. Well, Jason is is this supremely logical and scientific guy, um, and he gets thrown into this world of vampires and werewolves, really cool ones, by the way. Um, and uh, he's got a girlfriend, Sylvie, who is um, is, is sort of a new ager. Um, what is the attraction there? Sylvie plays the role of the gypsy princess, new age. Well, look at the crystals, so on and so forth. But she's playing that role at least as much as she really isn't. She does have inherent mystical talent, as we see in the book. But she is quite hard-headed, rather like Jason, except that she started with a power. She found quickly, even when she was very young, that she actually did have this ability to sense when things were dangerous, when something was wrong. It was infallible when she focused on it. So... She actually started out knowing there are these things, and so she studied a lot of the weird, mystical, new age stuff, and she ended up getting into it as a business. Um, but she loves playing the, the uh, um, innocent airhead because it actually gives her an advantage. Um, Jason finds her attractive because of the contradiction between her, her, her loving to act this way and her, at the same time, completely practical, hard-headed behavior, and of course, the mysterious fact that she really does seem to have something, something that contradicts everything that he knows. Um, mystery is always attractive to Jason, yeah. even when it's about to get him killed. It's always attractive to him, which is why he keeps getting involved in these things. Yeah, well, she I mean, she is a hard-headed, uh, for a new ager, uh, she's, um, she's... She's hard more. <laughs> yeah. Nobody the, takes advantage of her, and she doesn't let Jason like, tell her that she's wrong when she knows that she's right about something. Nope. You don't want to mess with her if you really get her mad. Similarly, if you hurt her, you really don't want to see Jason that mad either. It's one of the few things that will get him to to go all out against you. Yeah. Values her immensely. Now, the, the sort of piece de resistance is in the novel is this wonderful character, Vern Domingo. Um, don't want to give too much of his origin away, which is extremely cool, and we find out in the book. But uh, tell us about this great character. Well, Vern, I, obviously I wanted a cool vampire in this novel. Um, how can you write a, a novel that has vampires at all if you don't have one of them that's cool? Um so, of course, I took my first model, what I thought at the time were the coolest vampires around, um, which were Frank Langell's depiction of Dracula and Fred Saberhagen's version of Dracula. Is the Holmes Dracula file, an old friend of the family, those books. Yeah. Um, I said, this is what I want to project, an old, very noble man, but an extremely dangerous being at the same time. He's not somebody you want to mess with and far more powerful than you think 
is. In the end, Vern became much more than just that sketch. Um, the initials, of course, I took directly from Vlad Dracul, VD. Um, I wanted him to have the same initials, and in fact, originally, I toyed with the idea of making him Dracula. But as I was working with him, I said, no, there's something more to him. And then when I was working on the rest of my universe, I suddenly realized where he fit. And once I knew where he fit, I said, oh, okay, that's who he is. Now I could work with him and build him up. And as you say, we, we probably don't want to give away the origin to people who might read the book because it's more fun to find it out um, when you get there. Well, he's very, I mean, he's very sympathetic, but at the same time, he's very scary. He's not somebody you want to mess with. You find that out especially in uh, lawyers, ghouls, and mummies. <laughs> um, you get to see Vern when he's really mad. And no, you don't ever want to mess with him. There's very few beings on that planet that want to, if he decides that he's no longer playing games with you. Yeah. Well, there's also werewolves in this world. Um, can you explain how they work? They are, they're pretty scary, and they're rather powerful. They are, in some ways, the single most powerful monsters ever. Um, they are terrifying uh, for many reasons. They are essentially invulnerable except two things. One, silver. You can kill them with silver. Two, um, the ability life-draining or destroying, energy-draining or destroying powers. Because they are beings that are both energy and, ma and matter. And they live by eating energy. They prefer life energy, the energy of souls, magic, and, and other things of that nature. But they can eat anything. So hit them with a machine gun, hit them with a bazooka, hit them with a thermonuclear weapon, doesn't matter. It's not going to kill them. They will reform, and they will come back after you. Um, fortunately, they are vulnerable to silver. Otherwise, they'd take over everywhere. Their leader is really the worst one of all. In fact, he's far worse than Paradigm's Lost really lets you get a look at. You start to get a hint of it really at the end in the final uh, story, Trial Run. Um, you get a look maybe at the way he really works, but you don't. Um, it won't be until later that you really find out what he is and just how powerful he can be when he chooses. He's really, he's really interesting because he is so old and so jaded that when we meet him in different incarnations, whenever he is doing a different plan, he will have changed his power set and his abilities specifically for that particular mission, judging where it gives the heroes a small but real chance to actually kill him. Because it is so boring to have no chance to lose, it's like playing solitaire and cheating. So he makes sure that there's some way for him to lose. He is that bored with existence. And he's also willing to kill you for making one mistake. If if you stop uh, interesting him, <laughs> it's not a good thing. No, it's basically your soul. Will, if you are lucky, your soul will be shredded and consumed. Yikes. If you're not lucky, he has something worse for you. A cool trope of the book is that Jason uses tech to find and beat these supernatural beings. Um, he figures out a way to identify werewolves, which they're hard to even identify when they're in their shape-shifted form. Um, he puts an internet into, or at least a, a LAN into <laughs> Deferred's vampire lair. Um, I was wondering, like, today, if Jason is still around today, which he might be, I suppose, uh, 
how you we've talked about data mining and such um what would he be doing now to track down supernatural types <laughs> well right now he'd be able to first of all uh, take advantage of the immense amount of data that's already out there um, but by that point you know if i was to continue right um you already see that he gets certain connections to government agencies uh, by that point, he's become sort of a central consultant for the weird for everyone, including government. And basically, that means he gets dedicated stuff that even the NSA is looking at and saying, where are we getting that? <laughs> um, he gets the top he gets the top level gadgetry that helps him process information faster, um, search it faster than anyone else. But he does have limits in that. He, of course, doesn't have the authority to listen to everybody's stuff and he wouldn't want it. Yeah. Matter of fact, uh, he works very hard and um, in that period of time, he works very hard to limit the amount of power that's distributed. There's an interesting facet of the difference in the world. In Jason's world, there is no 9-11. There never was. Mm. But there was the Morgantown incident, which actually allowed basically the same kind of overreaction and panic and uh, leveraging of that kind of panic into more surveillance and such. And uh, Jason fights against that rather strenuously, um, trying to prevent the technology and the fear from being used to erode the basic freedoms that people have, and that Jason himself is very much fond of. We'll be talking to you about Castaway Planet and Phoenixing Shadow coming up, I hope. Um, but uh, what are you working on at the moment? Huh, I've got several. Um, I'm just finishing up something that isn't even Bane-oriented, my self-published uh, Oz-related novel, Polychrome, should be coming out in February if nothing happens, fingers crossed. Um, for Bane, I'm working on the sequel to Castaway Planet, uh, which I'm currently calling Castaway Odyssey, and uh, the final of the Phoenix books, uh, Phoenix Ascendant. Um, I'm past novel length on both of them, technically, um, but still have a long way to go before I get them finished. Um, I have started uh, the first few chapters of what is the strangest thing probably that I've ever had contracted or I'm going to write, called The Ethical Magical Girl, first volume, Princess Holy Aura. Um, I'm not sure that I could describe that with a lot of time. Uh, let the, talk, the title of it speak for itself. And um, I'm setting up for writing the uh, third uh, Marineverse novel we mentioned earlier, Challenges of the Deeps. We've got a couple of other things that I'm thinking of doing, but I haven't moved forward on them. But then a couple of outlines, which I think you've already seen. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing how uh, how Phoenix, uh, the F story of Phoenix and Tobamar and uh, Poplock uh, comes <laughs> comes to some sort of resting point, I assume, in the uh, in the third uh book. I will say the climax of that uh, of that trilogy is one that I have known since 1991, and I've been waiting that long to write it. So by the time it gets published, it will have been like, what, 23, 24 years? Yeah. Since I knew what had happened in that conflict. So it's like a fine wine climax. Very, very much. <laughs> Vintage. I hope so. I hope it's the fine wine and not a vinegar. <laughs> so any plans to uh, write more Jason Wood stories? Or well, I've already done the one 
that you've got up on the uh, site now, which follows um, all the events in um, Paradigms Lost, uh, titled Bait and Switch. Oh yeah, um, I've, I totally forgot that we've got a we have a story up at, on the website right now for free. Yeah. Set in this universe. Yep, right now for free, and it, it follows immediately after the events in uh, Paradigms Lost. So, I mean, I plan to write more decent with stories anyway, but obviously if Paradigm's Lost does well enough, then I will have more incentive to write them now. I actually, if I want to get to the, there's a, basically, I want to kill Viragar. In order to do that, I have to get past three goalposts of writing. And uh, some of those goalposts do indeed involve writing more Jason stories to get him up to a certain point where the final confrontation of Viragar has to happen. That confrontation will not just be between Jason and Viragar. It'll be basically everybody who matters versus Viragar, and uh, not everybody's going to survive that one. Yeah. And I can't wait to kill him because I really hate him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like him as a villain. Yeah, it's, it took me twenty years to invent him, but as soon as I invented him, it's like, oh, I can't wait to see you die because <laughs> you really need to. He's very menacing. He's uh, this is the uh, werewolf. Uh... In the story, or whatever, the energy soul eating being. It's just called the Werewolf King. Yeah. He has other names in other places, yeah. um, other planets, other, uh, you know, Zarathan, the, the Saurans, and so on have other names for him. Um, they, their name for him is Pagas, <laughs> which roughly translates to Night on the Light Slayer. Uh-huh. So there's probably million different names for him. Yeah. None of them nice. Well, his nastiness and his uh, power certainly is uh, comes across in the book. Jason has to face this dude and uh, has to find a way to survive. And there he's at his, he, he is at his apparent weakest. That is the weakest you will ever see him because he was playing a role fit for a almost mundane world. If you see him in... Uh, Zarathan, he's vastly more powerful, and that doesn't even begin to approach what he can do if he really wants to, which you won't see probably until, hopefully, I get to write that story that I call I call the grand finale, but the title of it will probably be something like Wolf's Dominion. Um, but until then, you won't actually see what he really is and what he can do. I got the feeling that uh, you'll write it one day. You seem to... Uh to tenaciously get things that you thought of in the past into print sooner or later. Well, you guys still haven't taken my space opera yet, Demons of the Past. So, um, I may have to self-publish that one, but by God, it's going to get out there because I spent... <laughs> that one started even before uh, Digital Night did. Well, it takes place after Atlantia fell. It's a space opera with some weird stuff in it. Um, Basically, it's a story of a civilization that rose in the galaxy afterward. Um, a capsule description that I've always liked to use is, what would have happened if Luke Skywalker had just gone to the Imperial Academy and had a nice career, and then after, say, 20 years, then he discovered what the Empire was really like. Had to make a decision as to which direction he was going. That's basically demons of the past, although it gets very more complex than that because it becomes political maneuverings as well as uh, spy, intrigue, and a whole bunch of other stuff. 
coming down to a conflict of Smithian, Doc Smithian proportions at the end. It's a battle that I, another battle I really want to write that involves literally hundreds of thousands or millions of ships in one huge combat. Well, it sounds cool, um, and I'm sure that eventually <laughs> it will see the light of day. But the book that is out and has seen the light of day right now and is in books at booksellers everywhere is Paradigms Lost by Reich E. Spore. Reich, thanks so much for being with us this time. Thank you very much for your uh, time, and I'm uh, very glad that I can finally have this perfected version of it out there. And now here is part 37 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Here's the setup for what's coming up. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their powers for good, but some do not. Jake Sullivan is a private eye. He's also a former soldier, an ex-con, and an active heavy, the type of active who controls the force of gravity. Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 37 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. Down, Mr. Garrett shouted as several hundred pounds of gold-plated blimp statue were hurled through the front entrance of the Grim Noir house in a sparkling shower of glass and splinters. Mr. Browning went spinning across the tile on his back. Francis cranked the huge machine gun around and mashed the butterfly trigger. It roared and spat a fireball from the muzzle the size of a fifty-gallon drum. Huge bullets tore into the fountain, raising a cloud of concrete dust. The bull monster came out of the hole with water steaming from its burning hide. It jerked as the bullets hit, black smoke shooting from the wounds. It grabbed the pulverized statue of the fat man, raised it overhead, and threw it too. Time seemed to slow to nothing as Faye watched the broken statue spiral directly toward the machine gun. Francis was still shooting, silhouetted in the red flashes, as giant brass cases hit the floor and bounced away, and she knew that he was going to die there, smashed to pulp, trying to put the demon down to save the rest of them. She traveled. Landing dangerously close to Francis, she whacked her nose on his rifle stock, threw her arms around his waist just as the statue hit and they were gone, landing ten feet to the side as half the wall and the machine gun flew back into the grand piano in a terrible crash of hot steel and wood. Francis was on top, squishing her into the carpet. His eyes were squeezed tightly shut. They opened slowly, surprised to be alive. How? 
She didn't know. She'd never traveled with anything other than the clothes on her back before, let alone a whole nother person. She checked, but nothing seemed melted together like Grandpa had warned her could happen. I didn't know I could do that, Faye exclaimed as she shoved him off into a pile of broken glass. She would have giggled, except for the killer bull monster coming to get them. She wasn't where she'd expected to land and had only made it halfway, which made a kind of sense since she was moving a lot more weight than normal. A hoof came out of the crater and slammed deep into the pavement of the walkway. The demon, billowing smoke from a dozen wounds like a broken chimney, lowered its head and roared. It was coming for them. The grimoire kept shooting, but the smaller bullets didn't even seem to hurt it. She didn't know much about demons but she figured when it ran out of smoke, it would be dead. But by the time that happened, it would probably have killed them all. Something gray shimmered through the remains of the front porch, and Heinrich materialized right in front of the monster. He shouted something insulting in German. The demon turned its eyes toward him and growled. Yes, here I am. Come, come and get me. He shot it with a skinny-barreled pistol. A three-clawed hand swung and Heinrich turned blurry right before impact, and it zipped through him. He ducked under the next attack and rolled across the grass, his long coat flapping behind. What's he doing? Faye asked. Buying us time, Francis answered as he pulled himself up. Heinrich turned gray as the demon lowered its head, snorting in rage and threw horns through him. The mean but very brave man appeared on the other side, grimacing from the strain. What happens when he runs out of power? He dies. Francis looked her right in the eyes, desperate. Can you find it, Summoner? If you can stop him, it'll weaken that thing. Some of the others were moaning. Jane was moving between them like a white battlefield angel. Bullets were landing around them again as the remaining bad men renewed their attack. She turned to the woods and knew that it would take a few jumps to find the man controlling the demon, and she would have to find him out there in the dark, surrounded by the same kind of men who'd killed Grandpa. I'm not losing another family. She gripped Mr. Browning's forty-five tight in her calloused palm, picked a spot as far away as she dared, and was gone. His chest was burning. Sullivan sat up with a grunt. His back was pressed into the end of a ditch, and it took him a second to realize that the trench had been dug by his body. He shook his head to clear it as he pushed loose from the dirt. His shirt had been ripped open, and the hexagram scar on his chest was hot to the touch. The new power was streaming through his tissues, giving his already hardened body extra strength. His power was still recovering from the massive spike, but he could feel it building along with his anger. He checked the bar. The rugged weapon was unharmed, etchings of durability glowing slightly in the dark. He had landed close to the woods and could hear voices around him in the night as the Imperium men cautiously approached the house. They were all around him, shapes in the fog. There was gunfire to his left as one of them opened up. In the distance, the greater summoned was battling with Heinrich. Behind the spinning forms, the first floor of the Grimdoir house had been laid open like a disemboweled animal. Delilah leapt from the second floor, screaming, dark hair whipping in the moonlight, and landed next to the demon. She charged it, fists raised. It was going to rip her apart, and it was his fault. Damn it, he muttered, rising. Now I'm mad. 
He came out of the trench, covered the short distance to the man shooting the submachine gun, raised the heavy bar overhead, and shattered his skull. Before the body hit the ground, Sullivan had picked up the sub gun, some weird jab thing with the magazine sticking out the side, and raised it in one hand, looking for his next target. There were two more men crouched ahead of him, so he pulled the trigger, working it across them, bullets tearing into their backs as they jerked and twitched. The bolt flew forward empty, and he hurled it into the darkness. Shapes turned toward him, aware now that something terrible was in their midst. Sullivan shouldered the bar and went to town. Faye hit the ground running. She figured she might as well be moving while she checked her head map, since the place was covered in bad men with guns. But she didn't need to worry, because off to one side, Mr. Sullivan was killing the ever-living hell out of the Imperium men. They were dropping like alfalfa in front of a scythe. If I was a demon summoner, where would I hide? She scowled at the trees. The fog was wispy and moving, and it made it hard for even her gray eyes to see good. Kid. A deep voice came from above. She looked up to the noise of beating wings and instinctively ducked as an owl swooped past. Hundred and twenty yards due east, Lance shouted through the bird. Careful, there's three of them. She could travel that in a few hops. Back at the house, the demon roared its fury, and she knew she didn't have much time. Maddie stalked back and forth, enraged. Several grimdoir were tangling with the severely damaged bull king. His goons were dropping like flies. The stinking, unreliable shadow guards were still missing, and his watch was telling him that Toshika was in position and needed to get a target in the next few minutes before the army pulled their heads out of their asses, realized they'd been attacked, and sent reinforcements to the peace ray. And he still didn't know if the Tesla device was here or not. Damn it, Hirayasu, you better get your shit together or I swear on the chairman's eyes I'll cut your balls off. The thin man was concentrating on his power, sweat beating his brow. One moment. Yutaka was focused on his demon. Maddie stomped over to him, scowling. They should have been done by now. This is fucking unacceptable, he shouted as he drew the beast from his shoulder holster. I'll take care of these grimy bastards myself. He flinched as Yutaka's brains hit him in his good eye. The right side of his partner's head had split open like a dropped melon. Yutaka opened his mouth like he was trying to say something, but nothing came out except a trickle of blood as he fell to the ground. Maddie wiped his face with his coat sleeve. A skinny, gray-eyed girl was standing there, big forty-five raised in one quivering hand. You, they said at the same time, and she cranked off several fast shots, and by the time he raised his gun, she was gone. Son of a... Bitch, Maddie bellowed, feeling the burn of the hot slugs embedded in his chest. It was that Portuguese brat. You traveling whore. Hirayasu was crouched low, afraid. Maddie's improved senses couldn't pick her up. He knelt down and checked Yutaka, but half the contents of his head had already slid onto the damp grass. His partner had only been able to sustain a single kanji of vitality on his body, and that wasn't near enough to withstand getting your skull emptied. He'd lost an iron guard. He'd lost a brother. The chairman was going to be pissed. There was a flash of movement to his side, and he raised his fifty, thinking it was that little traveler bitch coming back for more, but instead it was one of the shadow guard. The little man in black bowed deeply, noticing the dead iron guard. 
Sir, I have bad news. What now? Maddie spat. Our other shadow guard was lost to the grim noir. He was... Frankly, I don't give a shit. Did you find the device or not? Not yet, Iron Guard. I will return. Wait, you're taking me with you. You want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. He turned to where his remaining Iron Guard was cowering. The forty-five bullet lodged in his lung was pissing him off. Maddie grabbed Hirayasu by the collar and hoisted the tiny Lazarus off the ground. Listen up, Yutaka was twice the man you were. I'm going in there myself, and there damn well better be some goddamn zombies doing some killing out here, or I'm going to come back and hurt you in ways you can't even imagine. Got it? Hi. Maddie dropped him on his ass, put his hand on the shadow guard's shoulder, and said, Move it. I got murdering to attend to. The two of them traveled, disappearing into the darkness. The greater summoned was confused, weakened. It stumbled as Delilah punched it in the chest with a crack that could be heard across the entire peninsula. It went to one knee, and Delilah immediately stepped up onto its leg, threw herself high, and crashed her elbow down between its four eyes. Fire billowed around her, scorching her dress. The demon slashed at her stomach, but she was too quick, and only a thin trail of blood flew from her abdomen as she leapt back landing on her hands and knees fifteen feet away. The demon rose, smoke billowing from wounds too numerous to count. It wobbled, disoriented, no longer being whipped on by its summoner. Hey. Sullivan reached up and tapped it on the shoulder. The demon turned and opened its mouth to roar at the new challenge. Jake calmly drove the muzzle of the bar in between the flaming jaws and pulled the trigger. Smoke exploded from its eye sockets, nostrils, and ear holes as the thirty oh six bullets ricocheted around inside its armored skull. He wrenched the gun free, raised his left hand, and spiked gravity sideways. The demon tumbled down the lawn. It rose, shaking onto its claws and knees. Wasting no time, Delilah ran up its back, crouched between the crumpled wings, and grabbed it by the horns. She surged her power, screaming as every vein became visible in her straining arms, and wrenched the head violently back. Its neck snapped, and smoke shot like a broken steam line from its throat as flesh ripped. Delilah kept pulling, her teeth grinding together as her power drove her strength to Herculean levels. The demon's head tore free and she lurched back. The body seemed to deflate smoke rising and oil dripping from the stump as it sank to the ground. Delilah raised the bullhead over her like a trophy and shook it. Take that, you magic cow son of a bitch! She threw it over her shoulder as she appeared to shrink, her power exhausted. Sullivan stepped over the body. Heinrich was struggling to get up, splattered with blood and smoking oil, his gray coat in tatters, but he was grinning from ear to ear. Damn fine work, my friends. You okay? Sullivan shouted at Delilah, concerned. She was panting, exhausted, filthy, and injured, but still gave him a broad smile and a wink. They'd done it. They'd survived. And Sullivan felt a huge weight lift from his chest. Then a man in black appeared at Delilah's side and drove a sword deep into her guts. Jake! Her eyes widened, 
one hand stretched imploringly towards Sullivan. She fell away in a flash of red as the ninja twisted and jerked the blade free. Sullivan screamed her name, bringing up the bar, but the barrel was blocked by an open hand that hit like iron, and he was staring into the blank white eye of his older brother. That was part 37 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic as read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a howl of thanks and praise from 10,000 werewolves who serve the cause of light and who restrict themselves to eating only vegetarians. And an extra 238,900 mile spool of Cat 5 wire thrown in because the Great Lunar Landing Project was cancelled after the aliens jacked in and used the internet to watch too much Minecraft and to check their Facebook status every five minutes to Reich E. Spohr, author of Contemporary Fantasy, Paradigms Lost. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy storytelling and keep reaching for the stars. Making lots of toys for good girls and boys.